Welcome back to Beauty Uncovered by Olaplex, your expert guide to beauty, health, and wellness. I'm your host, Danielle Frank, and on today's episode... You are more than your hair. You are a person, and whether you have your hair or not, you can put on a wig. Your people are still going to love you regardless. Welcome back to Beauty Uncovered, sponsored by Olaplex. My name is Danielle Frank. I am your host today, and I want to remind you to please press that subscribe button, comment. Tell me a little bit about what you want to hear about on the podcast because we're always interested. But today, I want to talk about hair loss. Actually, no, you want to talk about hair loss because on my social media channels, whether you are following me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, I am constantly getting questions about hair loss and what to do about it. Why is this happening? Well, last October, we had a guest. His name was William Gonitz. And since this question keeps on coming up, I thought this was a good time for us to repost it because he really does dive deep into that subject. Now, I do want to remind you that this is not medical advice. This is information. It's information you should take to your doctor because we never know exactly why you're having that hair loss until you talk to your doctor. Aside from that, be sure to follow me on my social platforms, whether it be on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, it's daniel.e.frank. And also for Olaplex as well on all their social channels, you'll see a lot of information on there as well. So with that being said, let's get started. So William, I have to say, one of the biggest topics I get on all of my social media is about hair loss and hair fall and what causes it and how to prevent it. And as a hairdresser, I get nervous because, I mean, we learn about it, but not to the extent of a trichologist. So I want to start this conversation with you explaining to our listeners exactly what is the trichologist. Yes, I appreciate being here. And that question comes up quite a bit. I even did a video on it on YouTube because people are like, what is a trichologist? Especially when I introduce myself and they're like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, well, I'm a trichologist. And they're like, I don't know what that is. So essentially a trichologist is a scientist of the hair and scalp. So, you know, a lot of trichologists in the United States, it's simply a certificate, but in Europe, it is, I mean, a full-blown education. It's, it could be basically the equivalent of like a physician's assistant or a nursing degree. And they really do a deep dive from the medical aspect. So in the United States, we're focused on predominantly hair loss and hair growth. But as you branch out into other countries, they really have more of a holistic medical view. And I, that's what I have. It's that holistic medical view, but it just depends on the teaching. And it's funny because a lot of trichologists in the U.S. start out as stylists or you know hairdressers. And they find an interest because there's so many people asking about hair loss. So then they pivot and they become trichologists. For myself, I never was a stylist and I never was a hairdresser. So I simply dove right into a sort of the medical aspect of it and dove into the trichology aspect of it and focused exclusively on hair growth, which is, I think, a little bit about why my skill set is a little bit more profound in certain areas. 
But, you know, from the long-winded answer, that is trichology to me. So, so what made you decide you wanted to get into trichology? Because, I, I, again, as a hairdresser, I can understand where the interest is. You know, you're working with hair. But what was it that made you feel like you needed to pursue this? I started losing my hair. So, oh, I mean, there I, you go. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, I was going to be an architect. And as I joke, some days I wish I was an architect. <laughs> but, uh, it's... Really, I started losing my hair when I was 17. So I actually went to an all-guys military school. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of things that were going on. There was intense. There was a lot of stress. There was a lot of physicality to it. And I started losing my hair in the crown, which was purely male pattern loss. And as time went on, I actually, as I was going to school and I was working for a chemical company, I actually got sick from the chemicals. And I happened to be very sensitive, didn't know it at the time. And it caused a tremendous amount of shedding, hair loss. My hair actually turned sort of this washed out gray color. And, you know, imagine at 20 years old, that's, that was a problem. Wow. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So, but that's, I literally started studying trichology because I went to all the physicians in my area in Phoenix and no one could fix me. They gave me Propecia, they gave me Minoxidil, nothing worked. And I'm going, well, I'm too young for this. I got to figure this out. And uh, here we are now. Wow. So I, I think let's dive in because I, I know. <laughs> so, you know, all of you, so you know, we actually had a call once before and I think we've just started like talking. It was so exciting. And I sat there thinking, gosh, we should be like recording this. So I think that we have a lot to say. I want to talk about first the different types of hair loss and different root causes, right? Absolutely. Um, and I was fascinated by the information you were talking about. So let's start with what are the types of hair loss that are out there? Sure. Well, there are a tremendous amount of medical names for hair loss. So, you know, androgenetic alopecia is your male pattern loss. Alopecia areata is a very prominent inflammatory hair loss, which has those little circles. Most people in the beauty industry know what that is because they've seen it. Alopecia areata can turn into totalis, which is basically full head baldness. And that can turn into universalis. So those are all inflammatory. And then you have all sorts of other, I mean, traction alopecia, cicatricial alopecia, which is scarring. And then you can get into some of these other very, you know, bizarre ones like lycoplanoplanaris and folliculitis. And there's all sorts of different versions of how this plays out. But, you know, after doing this, I'm on my 20th year of professionally working with patients for hair loss. I have actually coined what is called the trichology or the Ghana's trichology method. And it literally breaks all of those different types of hair loss down into three categories. One of those categories does not exist in medicine. And it's becoming more prominent in really, I call it a nutritional alopecia, but it is a very powerful form. So those three reasons for hair loss, one is DHT or hormonal. So that would be related to, you know, PCOS for women and female pattern hair loss for women, male pattern hair loss for men, nutritional hair loss, which again, is not a medical term. It's just something that I coined. And realistically, that is related to ferritin, vitamin D3 and zinc. And so those are the three big ones. And then you have inflammatory hair loss, which is basically all encompassing of a lot of these bizarre ones that we hear about, I mentioned areata, cicatricial alopecia is a scarring alopecia, thyroid issues, those actually are inflammatory. Chemotherapy, drug-related hair loss, those are all inflammatory. So they all have a very specific mechanism. They all actually have very specific treatments. And that's really the big issue in the industry is that 
There's no one size fits all. Every person is different. You might have a vitamin D issue, but not a ferritin issue. And you might, or you may have a thyroid issue and a vitamin D issue. And then you might have no hormonal issue at all. But you, somebody says, Hey, you know what? You should probably take this DHT blocker and that's going to help you. And you try it and it doesn't work. And then you go, Okay, well, that didn't work. So all this is a bunch of shenanigans. It's all about treating the individual reason for loss. And you might have all three. And that's where people get hung up is there are so many different reasons for hair loss. And you may be experiencing one, two, or three of them. And you have to treat them all simultaneously. And that's the difference of being successful or floundering. And that's the main issue with the industry. So let's... um... Rewind a little bit because here's the interesting thing. I actually was very surprised to hear about so many young people, such as yourself, that winded up having hair loss. Because, you know, when you hear about hair loss, a lot of people think, you know, genetics, particularly with men or hormones with women. I think those are the ones that are probably the big cause, or, you know, it's hormones, but a lot of times they say aging. Uh, (laughs) But in the long run, there's a lot of people that wind up having this at a very young age. So what I would love to go into is that typically, what is it that you find with people that are in their adolescence or early 20s and they're experiencing hair loss? Like, what is the first thing that they should do? So that's a great question that most people should be asking. And the vast majority of the time, you are losing hair under the age of 20. It is due to either nutrition or inflammation. Hormones, although theoretically they can kick in earlier in life if you have a hormonal abnormality, they usually do not actually play a role in normal genetic hair loss until your mid-20s. Like If you go back in time and you start looking at where people were 50 years ago when there wasn't birth control, where there wasn't all of these drugs to control ADD or something along those lines earlier in life that have a you know long-term ripple effect, they ultimately show that there's less hair loss. Because of the influencing factors nowadays, nutritional loss, because women, particularly, as soon as they start menstruating, they start losing blood. And when you lose blood, you end up losing a high volume of iron on a monthly basis. I have so many young female clients that come in, they might be 18, 19, 20, and they say, hey, I've been losing my hair since I was 14 years old. Well, if they started menstruating at 11, 12, 13, and you line this up, you go, okay, well, it makes sense that your ferritin level takes time to deplete. And once, if they're not consuming a high level of bioavailable iron, like in the form of red meat, then you're going to actually decrease the volume of iron flowing through your veins thus decreasing the most rapidly dividing cell on your body that is expendable, which is your hair. So when your iron gets low, you end up withdrawing nutrients from your hair and scalp because your body's trying to regulate the output of iron. And that is the most prominent issue when it comes to female hair loss early on. So when it comes to, particularly with women, I know that And we talked about this. A lot of times when one of our symptoms, because it is a symptom, is hair loss, a lot of times people play it off or or doctors sometimes will play it off, not all, as a vanity thing. You know, oh, well, you know, whatever. So they, but what are the things that they can come in armed with when they want to go to a doctor and talk to someone about this? 
I mean, do they ask for blood work? Do they ask for them to track certain things? I mean, I get my blood work, you know, once a year. I mean, does it make sense to have that checkup? So this is the most bizarre thing. So the vast majority of physicians, even if you ask for the blood test. So realistically, if you walk in, let's just say you're under the age of 25, you're losing your hair, you have no itching or burning, and the loss is diffuse. So you actually can sort of comb up the side of the scalp and see to that area. And the part line is as wide as it is on the top of the head. That is a very clear symptom of nutritional hair loss. So if you go in and you say to your physician, hey, I want a vitamin D3 test, I want a ferritin test, and I want a zinc test. 99% of the time, they're going to tell you, no, insurance isn't going to cover it. Can't do it. And that's just how it is. Now, you can actually in other countries, especially in Canada and in Europe, you can ask those and it will be covered because it's more of a universal healthcare. In the United States, there's some issues there. There are all sorts of other avenues where you can go in and do that from a third party. We're actually developing in our app a way that you can do it in the United States. And we actually have a contract with Quest. It's very inexpensive. It's cash pay and you can get whatever you want. And again, you can get a full panel for less than $100. But when you go to your physician, those are the things that you want. Now, to get away with it and get it covered by insurance, say that you are fatigued or you're bruising easily, and that becomes a medical condition. That becomes you know, possibly symptomatic for anemia. And then they will actually cover vitamin D3, ferritin, and zinc 99% of the time. So is it safe to say that men in that age group, if they were experiencing it as well, it is kind of the same thing when they're talking to their doctors? Yes. However, men don't lose the volume of blood that women do, obviously. The demands for iron are actually three times less. And most men from a, a perspective of dietary components, they're not overwhelmingly concerned usually as younger females. So younger females might be limiting animal protein. They may be vegetarian or vegan. Most men, in my experience, you know, they're not consumed with what they should be eating that early in life per se. So usually in that case, it's actually purely vitamin D3 for a young male. So if a young, any male under the age of 25, we, no matter what, give them vitamin D3 at a medium dose because that plays into male pattern loss because vitamin D3 actually helps regulate how your liver is going to detoxify your body. And it also has a direct relationship with, again, how thick and dense your individual hairs are. So again, it's male and female. They're different. They can't be treated the same. And again, this is all part of the indicative problem where you have to treat the individual and each individual has a separate set of needs. And a male, again, by and large, lifestyle factors are different. And so in that case, you're going to treat them a little bit differently. So if it turns out that a person is having obviously like a lot, I would say it's a lifestyle, but you know, in many ways it's a nutritional, as you were saying, is that reversible? In other words, I know that there are certain things like genetics that come into play when it comes to hair loss and that's genetics, you know, it's not right. necessarily reversible, but in this kind of scenario, there is the chance of it being reversible or, you know, you're in trouble. Nutritional hair loss is always reversible. So you may have 
let's just say a total volume reduction over a course of say 10 years of being nutritionally deficient of approximately 70%. Because I've seen that. I've seen people purely wow. due to nutrition lose 70% of their overall volume. And then it ends up you know, affecting your eyebrows, eyelashes, body hair, all of that for men, beard hair. So collectively, well, that can always come back. That's easy. So the genetic aspect of it, which purely affects the top of the head. So there's all sorts of misinformation about where genetic hair loss might be. People are losing hair back here or here or the temporal points. And they you know, haven't lost it up here. And then people say, well, that's genetic. No, it's not. This does not fall out due to genetics. This is what falls out due to genetics. And it takes time. Real genetic hair loss usually takes years for it to have a visible impact. And you have to lose 50% of your overall volume for that to actually appear thin. So collectively, only if you're losing hair here and not here, is it purely genetic. Most of the time, there is a nutritional component. And if there's itching or burning, or there's medication involved, then most of the time there is an inflammatory component. So, you know, we talked about hair loss earlier in life. Medications are a big deal. Women's birth control. I mean, there's a lot of sort of androgen-based birth controls that are, you know, problematic. And so if you, even if you have a low androgen birth control, which means that your estrogen may be a little bit higher, it's still manipulating your hormones early on. It's still causing this disruption between testosterone and estrogen. And then, you know, I see a lot of kids on Wellbutrin or I see a lot of kids on, uh, you know, ADD meds, and this has an inflammatory ripple effect. Accutane, I mean, it's just that directly causes hair loss. So you see these kids early on getting hair loss and it never gets resolved. So it's just, so they lose a little bit of hair when they're 14 and 16 and 18, then they get to college and then they're really stressed. And all of a sudden they're losing more hair. And it's because there's a nutrient issue, an inflammatory issue, and then it never gets corrected and it just gets worse and worse. So going back to the medications and stuff like that. So for instance, I'm going to go there. I have a dear friend who's had to be on medication for many, many years, and I've done her hair quite a few times. And the amount of shedding that she has is astronomical. It's not the same hair. I've known her since we were 13 years old. So what if you have to be on a maintenance medication, you know, severe disease that really you need to be on this medication, do you have any kind of recourse of what you can do? You can't just change your medication because you're losing your hair, you know, when you have heart and all these other things that are involved. Well, there are little things that you can do. So in my experience, you know, from a cholesterol perspective, Lipitor causes more hair loss issues than Crestor, which just does. And that's the experience that I've had. So I will recommend that they ask their physician to switch it. You know, there are only a handful of meds that become extremely problematic that you can't fight against. Blood thinners are one of them. So blood thinners like warfarin, that is just the best we can do is stop the loss, even if we throw everything but the kitchen sink at it. There are other ones like tamoxifen, which is an anti-estrogen. And so breast cancer is on the rise. You know, people are catching it earlier. Estrogen-based cancers are on the rise. If you are a female on an estrogen inhibitor or an estrogen blocker like tamoxifen, then you're going to end up 
basically having an uphill battle because it's a toxic load issue and it's a hormonal issue. So most of the time, yes, you can fight against it. You may have to do a little bit extra in certain respects. For example, if you are on one, you know, a statin, and then all of a sudden you're on another type of drug that may be for anxiety, let's just say Wellbutrin, and those two are really bumping up against each other rather than just having one or the other. So now you have two drugs influencing the situation. You will have to do more to maintain your hair than if you just had one. The other is a lot of these issues can be mitigated if you get your nutritional levels to optimal levels. So inflammatory hair loss like alopecia areata, intelligent effluvium, there is a lot of data that says if your ferritin is above 70 and your vitamin D3 is above 60 nanograms per milliliter, then you are actually protecting yourself 70% of the time against these inflammatory responses that lead to hair loss. So there are other avenues, there's other scalp conditions like psoriasis and seborrheic dermatitis, which are inflammatory. The same deal applies. You get your nutritional levels to the appropriate levels, then it becomes much easier to manage. Or oftentimes the scalp condition or the inflammatory condition just goes away. And because in the medical community, they're not talking about what the appropriate nutritional levels are for hair or scalp, then people are just left wondering. And there's very, very little data. I mean, that's out there that's being published that is actually giving people information in in the media because... I guess some people think that it's an acceptable side effect in order to like life-saving or whatever. But I think it's kind of a misnomer when you really think about it. I mean, there should be some kind of balance if there can be, you know, if there's a possibility. Well, and most of the time... Let's just take hormone replacement. So I started out in Phoenix, Arizona. They love hormone replacement in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a very cosmetic-based environment. And people at age 40, 45, particularly women, will start getting the soda pelly, just injections of the pellet that release estrogen and testosterone over time. Well, those hormones, they will influence you over time. And it actually takes about four months to burn off. And they all say the same thing. It doesn't cause hair loss, but it does. So, And they might not know that it causes hair loss because they just haven't experienced it or they feel like it's an abnormality that one in 10 are experiencing this, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of commonalities that you can look at somebody and go, look, you're more predisposed than someone else. So maybe you shouldn't add testosterone to this because we know that you're going to have a negative hormonal response. Or when someone has an initial shed, that they remove the testosterone from the hormone pellet so that they don't have that negative reaction. And again, getting back to what you can do, I mean, if you have to have a life-saving medication, let's just take something like chemotherapy, for example. When I was being trained in trichology, one of the aspects of trichology that they train you on is the psychology of it. Because there have been reports of oftentimes women, but they're so connected to their hair that they deny going through chemotherapy because they don't want to lose their hair. And then because of that, they pass on. And, you know, I I have family that has had hair issues and it's depressing myself. It's very depressing. 
from you know back in my 20s when I was looking in the mirror thinking I'm going to be bald at 25 I need to get married now I need to <laughs> I need to do all of these oh. things so because you think that your hair is so associated with your identity well it's the one accessory you're wearing all the time I know and and <laughs> it's true and it does make a difference so there are so many things you can do to prevent those things from happening but also if you are stuck and you don't have a choice and you have to be on these medications because it's going to save your life, it's okay to get a wig. It's okay to get a hair prosthesis, which is also known as a toupee. Because if that's what's going to make you feel better to take the medication that you need to save your life, take the medication that you need and don't worry about right. your hair because there are other avenues. And it's important that people know that there's help and that there's support because people, I mean, the, it is, I had to train my staff. We have four customer service professionals that answer the phone. I had to train my staff on what to do when they have a suicidal phone call. Oh my gosh. I, because it's a regular occurrence and it's just the nature of this type of industry. And you have to be compassionate and you have to be compelling and you have to say, look, you are more than your hair. You are a person. And whether you have your hair or not, you can put on a wig. Your people are still going to love you regardless. Like, you know, it's these types of things that you have to say. I mean, sometimes it falls on deaf ears, but it's just, it's, it's a good practice. And then if you can educate, I look at every single client and their situation, kind of like a, uh, a sound mixing board. So you've got all these little levels and every person, there's only about 10 genres that you have to dial in. But in that 10, you might have three or four that are totally out of whack and the rest are totally fine. And you just have to dial in those levels. And if you do that, somebody might spend $40 a month because they're you know, buying vitamin D and iron and that's all they needed. And it, it takes 12 weeks. And all of a sudden they go from dumping hair to growing hair. And they're back on track and there's no money, you know, from the ph pharmaceutical companies going to say, Hey, recommend iron, recommend vitamin D. So unfortunately there's a lack of education in the medical community for that type of thing. So let's circle back to scarring because, I, and this is another one. I got another personal story. Mm. Uh, I have this wonderful son who is a monkey <laughs> <laughs> he is without a doubt a monkey. I mean, he's he's a young adult and monkey, but when he was younger, he was the one I would always wind up in the in the emergency room with. So he was being a monkey and he slammed his head and he had to get stitches in his head. To this day, and he's going to be 20 soon, he has a quarter size bald spot in the back of his head. Okay. Uh, granted, when his hair was short, you would notice it. Now the kid's hair is beyond his shoulders. So he doesn't really have that issue anymore. But I mean, is there some kind of solution to that? Or is that just something I mean, it doesn't really bother him that much, but it no. is an interesting topic that, you know, I kind of thought this happened when he was all of eight years old. So I thought by 20, you know, something might've changed, but it never did. Is that just permanent? It's like smooth as a baby's butt. Yeah. In that case, it sounds very permanent. So there's really a solution nowadays for almost every type of hair loss. It just depending on what you're willing to do. So mm -hmm. if you have a scarring situation that 
is not changing. So it's not an active scarring alopecia. That can be easily taken care of with a hair transplant. So, I mean, you just move those hairs from another part of the scalp with follicular unit extraction or FUE. They will actually shave a little portion of your head and they'll take a punch and they'll basically punch out the hair follicles. And then you can just basically move them to the place where you want them. And it leaves almost no trace whatsoever in the donor area. And you can use that to put it wherever you want it on your scalp. Obviously, if you're totally bald, you originally started out with 100 to 150,000 hair follicles on your head. So if you then look at, well, I have lost the entire top side of my scalp or 33% of my volume, that represents about 33,000 hair follicles. You're not going to be able to pull 33,000 hair follicles from here and cover this perfectly. The most that you can get with a hair transplant is about 8,000 hair follicles. And even then you end up sort of manipulating the back of the scalp a little bit to where you're going to notice, you know, if your hair is really short, especially if you would obviously have the old strip method where they cut out a portion of the scalp and then dice it up and then implant it in the head. So that sounds so brutal though. <laughs> I, I mean, so the new method, so the follicular unit extraction is still a hair transplant, but the only difference is, is again, they're punching out the hair follicles and they're being selective on the back of the scalp. So you're losing a density sort of uniformly back here and moving it to the top. Again, in the strip method, yes, it was barbaric. I mean, they're literally cutting down to the fascia and the muscle on the back of the scalp and removing a section of the scalp. They're trimming off the subcutaneous fat layer that you were using and you know, moving the hairs to where they need them. But, you know, I mean... A lot of patients, it is a undetectable hair transplant. They, whether it's FUE or strip method, they just wear their hair a little longer and their hairline's perfect. And then they basically minimize the future loss by, you know, utilizing either DHT blockers or correcting nutrition, et cetera. And they have a full head of hair for the rest of their life. So it's teach their own. My father had two hair transplants and you know, he continued to lose hair. So he still, he still looks bald. And that was, you know, long before I became a trichologist. So it just, it's whatever you can do to maintain your hair. For your son, if he didn't want to get a hair transplant, you could actually do something now, which is called scalp micropigmentation. And it's basically tattooing hair to, on the area. So it's oh, fascinating. So just like permanent makeup, there is a tattooing for the scalp and a lot of guys, they will start shaving their head and they have this sort of like five o'clock shadow on the sides, but not on the top. So that's where really scalp micropigmentation became a very sort of forced into the industry type of new treatment or cover up for hair loss because they'll tattoo that five o'clock shadow back onto the scalp. So in my opinion, it doesn't look very natural, but again, you'll never notice the ones that do look natural because it looks so good. So, you know, you've got so many different treatments and then there's scalp micropigmentation, there's hair transplantation, there's now injectables like PRP and exosomes, you know, which are related to stem cells and how they're going to help reactivate your hair follicles. 
Obviously, everything that we do in advanced trichology from the internal aspect of stopping all of the factors that are driving your hair loss and then utilizing growth stimulants like minoxidil or lullaby laser therapy to rehabilitate the area. Nowadays, if you learn, if you get to the right company, you should not have to go bald. There are so many things that you can do that you should be able to maintain your hair for a lifetime. So let's dive into products like minoxidil, because obviously that was quite the breakthrough when it came out. Yes. Is So I get a lot of questions, so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people wanting to hear this. Is that only for men? Okay. Uh, no, and it's not. It's not. Because I was going to say, a lot of women are under the impression that it's only for men, probably because it was more prominent with men when it first came out. Sure. So... Actually, ironically, the only FDA-approved treatment for women's hair loss is minoxidil. Interesting. There are no other FDA-approved treatments for women. There are two for men, minoxidil and finasteride, which is also known as Propecia. But women, really, their only option is minoxidil. So now, that's not true in the sense of stopping a loss, but from an FDA medical perspective. Mm. So minoxidil is a vasodilator. All it's doing is basically expanding the microcirculation to the individual hair follicles and getting more blood to the area. So I classify basically all hair loss treatment into three treatment categories. And then there is one category, which is purely growth stimulants. So there's treatment categories. What is the cause? What is actually making your hair fall out? You use one of those three or all of those three or two of the three to treat those. Then that leaves you in basically a holding pattern where you're not getting any worse, but oftentimes you will need additional stimulation to get better. And so that's where growth stimulants come in because your body's only going to repair itself to a certain level without stimulation. And in this case, minoxidil is the probably most prominent growth stimulant. So it is there asking your body to do more with what it has. And it does this purely by adding additional circulation. So if you are utilizing minoxidil only and you're not doing anything else to stop the loss, oftentimes you will either break even or you will get worse. And the reason for it is growth stimulants are a little bit like putting your foot on the accelerator. So if you know, basically you're, you're saying, hey, let's force this growth cycle faster If you are in an active decline because you don't have enough ferritin or you don't have enough vitamin D or zinc, if you actually add minoxidil, you're saying, hey, I want to do more with less. And so now it will actually expedite the loss phase because it's saying, hey, let's build faster. And then the little construction crew says, hey, we didn't have enough raw materials to build with what we were doing before. So now it's going to be even worse. So you actually end up shedding more. And that's a very, very common occurrence with women because there's oftentimes inflammatory nutritional factors that aren't mitigated. Men, they oftentimes have maybe one reason for loss, which might be DHT or hormonal. And when you add minoxidil, it actually will slow down the process of hair loss because again, it's asking you to kind of speed things up, but the loss wasn't so dramatic. It was slow and gradual, and they will actually see some improvement. Oftentimes that improvement is temporary. It will last usually one to two years until the underlying reason catches up and then it begins to fall out again. 
that's where it comes back to the question I was going to ask you is that I've had a lot of men say, oh, well, I don't want to start it because once you stop it, like once you're on it, you have to do it forever. Otherwise, once you stop it, you know, all your hair is going to fall out. With minoxidil, that is 100% accurate. You basically can't stop. So So once, once you're done using it, it no longer has a benefit. Well, it actually will have sort of a reverse benefit because so over time, and this is where people have this sort of misconception that minoxidil can cause hair loss worse than they already have. So if over time, let's just say you're 25 years old and let's just say your hairline is receded back to about here. And if you didn't do minoxidil, by the time you're 30, you'd be bald completely. So if that's your normal genetic pattern, let's just say you start using minoxidil at age 25 and you're treating only the back of the scalp and you are in a holding pattern. So minoxidil is doing a good enough job. It's improving circulation to the point where you did not lose this hair over the past five years. You then decide, you know what? I've been using it for five years. My hairline didn't change. It must not be working. So they stop. You will go within six months to a year from where you are now to where you would have been genetically regardless. And so you can dump basically five years worth of hair loss in one year because you were holding up this decline with the minoxidil and then you removed it and it just dumps off your head. And people say, I got worse when I stopped using it. Like, no, you just went to where you should have been if you never used it. And that's the confusing part because people, they don't know what portion of the hair loss treatment is doing what. And then they will assume that because they didn't grow more hair that it's not working. But it may be working very, very well to maintain their hair and they don't know until they stop using it. And the problem is, is once they stop using it and they get that five years of loss within that one year, it's near impossible to get it all back because it just, just goes. So that goes back to the genetic, the genetic code. Cause I mean, we've all heard it. We all get, or the men at least get their hair or what their pattern is from their mother's father. How true is that? That is absolutely not true. Uh, and I, you know, I think I, when we talked previously, I told you, you know, my father was bald pretty much by, you know, 35 ish, you know, closer to 40. And by the time I started to realize that he was bald, I started asking my mom, what, what happened to dad's hair? And she was like, oh, well, he went bald. It's genetic. It comes from my side of the family. You're going to be fine. We all have hair. Well, then I started losing my hair at 17. And Mm -hmm. if, if what was true was purely genetics comes from that side, then that would have never happened. So you can get- I saw the problem with that whole, I guess you would call it a myth. I have five brothers. They all have different types of hair and they all have different hairlines. So, and I'm like, okay, I can identify that with dad, but I could totally see my grandfather on my mother's side. But I mean, it's so different from person to person that I'm like, yeah, no, it's not all coming from mom's dad. He had a lot of hair. (laughs) And what what people get confused with too is I have so many female clients that I actually personally interact with. Some just buy product and whatnot. But the female clients that I interact with, some can have very dramatic loss along that frontal hairline. And they go, I don't get it. My mom, none of the women in my family have any hair loss. And I'll be like, well, what's your dad look like? And they're like, oh, well, he's bald. And I'm like, 
well, you inherited your father's hair loss pattern. And I'm like, did it start in the frontal hairline? Oh yeah, it started in the frontal hairline. And I'm like, well, that's where you're losing your hair. And because you inherited it from a male, it's just more dramatic in those male dominant areas. So again, men can inherit it from women. Women can inherit it from men. It's just like anything else. Up the tree, you can kind of get... Because you know we're all trying to predict what it's going to happen. You know? <laughs> we're all like looking at those relatives. I don't know. Let's see what let's see what's going to happen. I, I have two uncles. I have, and you know, one is almost sixty, and the other I think is sixty-seven or sixty-eight. One has been bald for thirty years. One has the full head of hair. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. I mean, it just it is what it is. It's interesting. Oh, genetics. It's an interesting subject. I think we could probably go on forever with that. <laughs> genetics. And that's one of those things too, that genetics, you only have about a three-year window, three to five-year window to reverse genetic loss. So, you know, we have before and after photos on our website and some people say, hey, that's the same hairline that I had. And wow, look how much hair that person grew in six months or nine months. And the before picture that they're referencing is somebody who is 24 years old and they may have lost all of that hair in three years. So yes, we could get a ton back because within nine months, we were able to get back that three years or five years worth of loss. But this person is 40 something. He's had 20 years worth of loss. He's looking at that same before and after picture going, that's my pattern. And we would not be able to have the same success because again, I will ask the individual, where was your hair three to five years ago? Was it the same? Did you have more hair? And, you know, usually people say I have more hair, but they might be like, well, it was a lot more, or they might say, well, it was kind of the same, maybe a little bit more. And those are the cases that you have to prepare yourself because if you look relatively the same five years ago and you want hair loss treatment now, you're probably not going to be very successful with natural hair regrowth. You will probably need something, you know, more powerful like PRP and exosomes or hair transplantation or in worst case, a wig. William, I feel like we packed so much freaking information in 30 minutes. A little more than 30 minutes. Oh my gosh. Yes, it has. I mean, I can go on forever, (laughs) which is, you know, probably mind numbing to my family. Um, <laughs> no, I, and like I said, I, I find the topic really fascinating and yeah, there's a lot of people that are asking for this information. And I think the nutritional aspect is very, very fascinating because I do think, actually, I do want to talk about one other thing that I had come behind my, when I'm in the chair, <laughs> I've had people that have had hair loss or they were shedding more than they normally do. And normally, at least as a hair professional, I mean, don't get me wrong, 90 some odd percent of the time, I'm usually saying, you know, you got to talk to your doctor if it's something completely out of the the regular than normal. But I have asked them, you know, hey, did you go through anything traumatic in the past eight to 12 weeks? You know, it could have been a death in the family, even a marriage, (laughs) you know, getting married, divorced, or just something stressful in general. And usually it doesn't happen in the moment. You know, we see those movies where they're like, oh, I'm under so much stress and my hair's falling out. It actually doesn't happen in that moment normally. It usually is something that happens, the trauma happens later, you know, when you've already gone through it and you're feeling good. So 
I want to kind of unpack this because we were talking about this yesterday. It's not necessarily the stress per se. It's not the event. We tend to associate it with the event. It's what your body nutritionally is going through. And sometimes we're not taking care of ourselves during those times. That's creating that months later, correct? Absolutely. So stress, and we we talked about this the other day. So to your timeline, so there is something called telogen effluvium, which is where your body with 90 to 120 days after a stressful event will actually shift up to 33% of the active growing hairs into the resting phase simultaneously. So you are just dumping hair off of your head for usually six months, sometimes a little less, and then it grows back as long as there's no underlying issue. So that is truly stress-related loss. And that again takes 90 to 120 days to even begin. COVID-related hair loss most of the time is telogen effluvium. So it takes that time for it to happen. Now, stress-related loss, in my experience, most of the time is actually related to not the actual stress. It's aggravators from lifestyle changes, from bigger draws on nutrition. So when your body's under stress, you're using more B vitamins. You're going to be using more iron. You're going to be using more vitamin D3 because your body's trying to offset this high acidic load because stress, emotional stress will actually create a biological response. And that response is typically higher acids, which then have to be buffered and will actually steal minerals from other parts of your body, like your hair. And if that's for a prolonged period of time, it will actually draw down vitamins like B12 and folate quickly. And then also, you know, if you're already on the edge with iron, it will push you over the edge or uh, even vitamin D3. Then there's the other aspect of hormones. So what does the stress do to your hormones? And oftentimes it will spike cortisol and our cortisol spikes every day, regardless, because that's just natural flow of things. But if it's prolonged and elevated for months or in some cases, years, you get a dig. Yeah. And then it affects your thyroid. And then it's just this catastrophic downward spiral. And now it's creating inflammation. So I see a lot of people who have that double whammy. It's stress, but it's the biological and lifestyle factor changes that draw down nutrients and then also affect hormones. And the other thing too is the lifestyle factors, because when people are under stress, they act differently. So they may drink more. They may not work out as much. They may not sleep as much. And then it gets even worse because if they're not sleeping, they're stressed about not sleeping and it just becomes a mess. It's like a vicious cycle. I mean, it's very hard to find that balance when you're in that cycle. Again, it's the mixing board. You just have to dial in for those individuals what they need, not, oh, well, this you know, onion juice and castor oil rubbed on my head worked for, you know, Jimmy. So I'm going to do the same thing. It's probably not going to work, you know? And then there's, I mean, you name it. I have the hanging upside down thing, the inversion table, that was huge about 15 years ago. People were like, well, I'm hanging upside down. I should be getting more blood to my scalp. Why am I still losing my hair? And I'm like, when did anyone think that that was really going to work? So do you have to treat the individual and treat the actual 
scientific factors. And, you know, unfortunately, most physicians and even a lot of trichologists don't know what those are. They have to seek out the right person, get a scalp analysis if possible, see your scalp under the microscope and get treatment and get real treatment and don't give up. Don't just because you had one negative experience, you might need to go through a couple people until you find somebody that's good enough to get the job done because they do exist. And there's more and more of them now today than ever. And you just keep looking. And I mean, so you know, we're, we're is training- there a resource? I mean, because obviously we have people listening from all over the place. Not everybody's in Arizona. So is there a resource that people can go and look for someone as a trichologist or someone that can help them? I mean, the only way that I can purely say that they will be helped most of the time is if they call us. I mean, because we, I have a team of people who are trained as junior trichologists and we do 99% of the stuff over the phone and we are accurate approximately 97% of the time based on an actual patient history. We are actually getting more advanced with our new app that's coming out with, again, you'll be able to do and enter in your blood tests into our app, and you'll be able to literally get recommendations from the app on what you need to take based on your blood test. So if you're in India or if you're in Russia and you have the same blood tests that we do here, which most of the time it's all relatively the same nanograms per milliliter, then you can plug it in and it'll tell you what to do. If you are looking for trichologists, the World Trichology Society. I'm on the board. I'm also a fellow with the World Trichology Society. You can go to that website and look under members and all active members are listed on that website. The only other organization that I would probably recommend is the International Association of Trichology. They're actually based out of Australia. They do not have a large presence in the US. However, they have a much larger presence in Europe. So you can go to that website and look at those. But really, in my opinion, the only two credible societies for hair loss treatment on you know, average are the WTS or the World Trichology Society and the International Association of Trichologists. So there are other associations in Europe uh, that I'm not as familiar with. So I'm sure there's some good ones in England and Italy. I just you know don't know of them. Not familiar. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, William, I'm thrilled with this conversation. It was very exciting to talk to you because, you know, I'm a hair nerd. So, you know, it's always fun to learn more information and just, you know, have it all kind of laid out for people. Thank you so much for coming on today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Happy to help. Never forget, everything you want to be, you already are. You are simply on the path of uncovering it. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Beauty Uncovered. To know more about Olaplex and its beauty technology, visit olaplex.com. You can also subscribe to get the latest updates on emerging beauty trends and innovation. Join us again next time as you continue to uncover your unique beauty here on Beauty Uncovered.